Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When I was in Washington, there were a few shrewder political minds than Steve Israel, a uh, congressman who was elected in 2002 as a Democrat from a swing district on Long Island that had traditionally been Republican. He went on to become head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and just to prove how shrewd he was, he decided in advance of the 2016 election that it would be his last and retired to become a novelist. Now he's wielding a satirical pen to shine a bright light on the gun lobby and some of his cowardly colleagues. Steve will be a fellow at the Institute of Politics in the fall, but I sat down with him the other day to talk about his career and his book. Steve Israel, it's, it's so good to see you again, no longer a member of Congress, uh, an author now, uh, and we'll talk about that. Um, and I should say we're, the noise you hear in the background is authentic Chicago CTA trains here, which you may hear periodically uh, as, we, uh, as we move through our discussion. So talk to me about Levittown and growing up and your, your family. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's great to be with you. I'm in the presence of a master and uh, honored, honored to be doing it. Uh, you know, I uh, kind of, I'm a product of uh, America's quintessential suburb. Uh, my uh, folks lived in New York City. Dad came home from the army. Where, where, did, the, where, did, they, where did their families come from? Brooklyn, of no, course. Uh, no, but you, the shtetls of Russia. Uh So my grandparents fled persecution, poverty, and pogroms in Russia, came here. I don't think they ever would have thought when they came here they'd have a grandson Mm -hmm. uh, with the title congressman who would fly in Air Force One. Uh, But um, that's what America offered. I have the the same feeling. My father was from uh, Ukraine and... Mm -hmm. Uh, and fled during the pogroms with his family. Yeah. And I, uh, most meaningful, one of the most meaningful moments of uh, the Obama presidency when I was standing there in Russia on the eve of what would have been his 99th birthday, mm. uh, hearing our national anthem played, standing there as senior advisor to the president, knowing what he's gone through to get to America. You know, I, um, I placed on my walls in the Capitol my grandparents' original immigration certificates. Uh, which were th- th- those those certificates on my walls were a daily reminder to me of what this country is about, and when Republicans would excoriate immigrants uh, and call them names and vilify them, uh, I would stand at those immigration certificates and apologize to my grandparents who I lost so many years ago, but they were my guiding uh, forces. Uh, you know, they were my best political consultants. Whenever I had a tough vote in 16 years in Congress, I would look at those. 
those permits with their pictures on them, and, and you just say, you know, what what would I, what should I do? What would you give a not? What would you give you nachas, which yes. I would tell Republicans is a parliamentary term. It means pride, <laughs> and. Um, you know, and so they were my moral compass in 16 years in Congress. And you would have been be. spending, it's a good thing you got out because you, you would have been spending a lot of time in front of those I know. immigration yeah. documents uh, mm-hmm. during these years. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to that. So, mm-hmm. so, you, they, so they settled in Brooklyn. So they settled in Brooklyn. My parents, um, my dad came home from the Army. Thanks to the federal government and this thing called the GI Bill, uh, my father was able to afford a small house in Levittown, which was the, the first was real the suburb in America. Quint, quint, quintessential, yes, as you said. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and I was raised uh, in Levittown with, I had three dreams growing up in Levittown. One, I wanted to uh, one day serve in the United States Congress. That dream came to me in fourth grade. Uh, the other was I wanted to be a novelist. And the third is uh, I wanted to play center field for the New York Mets. The, the, the Mets thing didn't work out very well, but the other two did. So far, they're, they're, they're flagging lately. They may, they may still it's, give you a call. It's so bad I could actually try out for center field. You've seen damn Yankees. You know, you yeah. could maybe make a Faustian bargain and play a game or two. Uh, uh, to there. So you, you knew at an early age that you wanted to be in politics. Yeah. Why? You know, I remember it vividly. Uh, I was in fourth grade and uh, Robert Kennedy had been shot mm-hmm. the night before. And I was sitting at my, my little desk at Gardner's Avenue Elementary School in Levittown, New York, and suddenly there was an announcement from the PA speaker, and it was the principal of Gardner's Avenue uh, announcing that Robert Kennedy had died uh, in surgery. And even in fourth grade, I started questioning, well, why would somebody do that to somebody else? And I just became so intrigued with the power of ideas that, you know, this guy gave his life because of what he believed in. And so I started reading the news and watching the news on television and just became hooked on the notion of power in order to help people uh, as opposed to hurt people. And you, uh, you became a student politician, I see. Uh, you want to know what my slogan was when I ran for president of my student body? Don't be dizzy, vote for Izzy. <laughs> really? It got that far? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's pretty good. That You just well, passed the absolute cliche it, it, test of America. <laughs> it, it, but, I mean, who could forget that slogan? I saw no, it once. It's, it's like ingrained in my head now. And it was a winning slogan? It was a winning slogan. Uh, I won the student body presidency and uh, delivered on my promises, uh, which uh, included a student lounge, which we opened up, uh, and discounted pizza in the cafeteria. So I delivered. Yeah. Listen, I understand this. I understand these politics. I I went to Stuyvesant High School in New York and ran for a student government position, Mm -hmm. and the whole platform was to get the right to go out of the building for lunch. And that was absolutely, uh, there was no other issue that was more uh, galvanic to these students, and we actually we accomplished that. So. Right. So my you know, brief I learned, political career, I followed through on my promise. Po- politics is about resonating, right? You've got yeah. to be able to tap into people's anxieties and hopes. I, I was going to offer uh, universal health care for all the students uh, at uh, MacArthur High School, but uh, I chose uh, the student lounge instead. That seems smart. Yeah, that seems smart. <laughs> and you you started and you went to community college before you went to. Another example of how the federal government and state governments lift up the middle class. Uh, I wanted to go to George Washington University. And David, I remember this also so vividly. I knew I wanted to go to Congress or be a writer. 
And I was at my dining room table with my parents, and my dad said, so where do you, this is, I was in 11th grade, and my dad said, so where do you want to go to college? And I just looked at him proudly and said, George Washington University. And he kind of, his, his lips kind of fell a little bit, and he said, um, you have the grades to get in? I said, yes. He said, you have the SAT scores to get in? I said, yes. He said, do you have the money to get in? And I looked at him and said, what do you mean, do I have the money? No, no, no. The question is, do you have the money? And, and he fell sad, and he said, I don't think we can afford to send you. Mm-hmm. He said, how about this? Go to a community college, and if you do well there, and uh, you scrape up some money, uh, we'll scrape up some money also, and then we'll send you to GW. Had it not been for Nassau Community College, I never would have been a member of Congress. A mm-hmm. second example of where the federal government empowers and uplifts and strengthens the middle class. Um. And, and you wanted to go there because of your interest in politics? Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to GW because I thought it could teach me everything I needed to know about public policy and politics. And when you got there, uh, you, what kinds of experiences did you have? Because one of the advantages of going to those schools in the Washington area is, you know, Congress is right there. Yes. You can intern in Congress. You, you can interact with the movers and shakers, mm-hmm. did you do that? I did. In fact, I thought that uh, the greatest value of going to GW was that the faculty there, uh, they worked in the State Department. They worked in the White House. Uh, these were not just people uh, teaching theoretical textbook examples. These are people who had to roll up their sleeves during the day you know, and, act- and, and experience and participate in government. And that was the best learning lesson for me. And uh, Bob Matsui, huh? Yeah. Was one of your... Early mentors, a congressman from California. Bob Matsui was a freshman member of Congress, and he hired me on as his part-time legislative correspondent. Those were the days Mm -hmm. when you had a computer operator inputting constituent mail. uh, And I did that. So I went to GW during the day, and at night, I just inputted constituent mail, and then I began writing uh, letters, uh, and then uh, did that for several years. And... One of the surreal experiences that I had was this. Uh, Bob, uh, as you know, David, he, he passed away uh, while he was in Congress. Uh, he was the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which I became. Uh, and I served with him for, I think, one or two terms, and then he died while I was in Congress. So the first guy who hired me, mm-hmm. I got to serve with, and then he passed away, and his wife, Doris, yes. was elected. You, uh, you also worked, uh, after you graduated, for Dick Ottinger, who yeah. was a... Democrat from Westchester, and that you mentioned Bobby Kennedy. Uh, there, there's a there's this obscure history that's kind of interesting because uh, a, a fellow named Charles Goodell, who was a congressman, yeah. was appointed to replace Bobby Kennedy, uh, and this occasioned a three way race uh, in a uh, for the seat uh, when Goodell came up, and Goodell became an anti war vote. Right. in the Republican Party. And James Buckley, William Buckley's mm-hmm. brother, ran as a conservative candidate in New York, and Ottinger was the Democratic nominee. Were you working, were you around at that time? Not then. I was, uh, I was too young. Um, but going to work for Dick Ottinger uh, exposed me to those lessons. Um, this was a case where uh, Ottinger should have won, uh, but there was a liberal Republican, Goodell, uh, and a conservative. Yeah, which, by Buckley the way, if you those are hard to find these days, but yeah, yeah. So Ottinger and the and, and that one last liberal Democrat, uh, liberal Republican, they split the vote, and and Buckley, uh, who was a transplant from Connecticut, won. Here's another obscure factoid from that race: that race, 1970, Dick Ottinger's Senate race, was the first 
election in America where a candidate spent over a million dollars. Uh, and it was Dick Ottinger. Uh, his political consultant was a guy named David Garth. Oh, yes. I don't know if you, if you knew him. A, a legend. Yeah, a legend. Yeah. And the thought, can you imagine this? The thought of somebody spending a million dollars for a seat in the United States Senate was just breathtaking. Nobody could believe it. Ottinger did it, and he lost. You, uh, He's yeah. still alive, by the way. He's still around. Yeah, the, I think people, you know, now, we should, Goodell's son is now the... the uh, NFL commissioner, right? right. So um, that little bit. I, when I I met him once when I yeah. was working for the president, and we talked a little bit about his dad, who was a courageous guy. I mean, he basically gave his political career up for his opposition mm-hmm. to the to the war. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you you uh, and you quickly identified um, uh, a a target. You 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 went to work uh, in Suffolk County and. And through government, I mean, you 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 sort of laboriously worked your way up through the ranks. Yeah, you know, I uh, I volunteered as a kid on every campaign I could volunteer on. Uh, so I I worked on congressional campaigns. Uh, I worked in county campaigns. I went to work uh, for the first Democratic county executive of Suffolk, and I think thirty or forty years. It was a big Republican stronghold. Huge Republican stronghold. It's now a huge Trump stronghold, which is extraordinary to me. Uh, and why do you uh, think that is? You know, it's so fascinating. As you as you know, I chaired the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, so I have a real feel for 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 districts. You know, what's in the environment. And I told Hillary Clinton uh, in 2016 at an event uh, that I was concerned about what was happening in Suffolk County. And I said, "Of course, you're running for president, so don't you know? Don't worry." She said, "No, no, I represented Suffolk County. I want to know what's happening." And I told her that the, this is a county that voted for uh, President Obama twice. Uh, and this is a county that was drifting. Uh, and, you know, it's not that I would see Trump signs. It's that, frankly, I would see lock her up signs around Suffolk County, which tells me that the, the kind of radical changes in the economy, uh, people's fear for their safety, whether it was gun violence or Ebola or beheadings, their loss of faith in institutions made Suffolk County kind of the canary in the coal mine uh, for the rest of the country. That population just became so anxious uh, that they were looking for an alternative to institutions. And by the way, they would have been fine, I think, voting for Bernie Sanders. They would have been fine and they were fine voting for Donald Trump. Um, it's not that they were voting for anybody. It's that they were voting against the, you know, the, the, the notion of institutions and uh, responsibility. They just wanted a big change. And, you know, while we're here, um, how much complicity did, did the uh, Clinton campaign itself have? Very honestly, um, and I, I walked into that campaign headquarters 10 days before the election um, I chaired the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee in the House, so my job was to fashion a message for every House Democrat, which had I done that, they could have just given me the Nobel Prize. There's just exactly. no way of doing that. And so, but I, I paid particular attention to my colleagues in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, and Florida, because I knew that those were the states that she had to win. And my colleagues in many of those states were telling me, she's not gonna, lose, she's not gonna win my district. My Democratic colleagues, uh, Matt Cartwright from Scranton, She's not going to. She's not going to win yeah. my district. And I went into the headquarters. I have to be honest, and and alerted uh, the folks there, uh, you know, to that possibility that in that uh, aggregate of states, it looked like we just weren't penetrating. Um, 
they disagreed with my view, uh, which is fair. Uh, you know, I was a congressman and not involved in the campaign on a daily basis. So I just assumed that they had better data than, than I did. Um, and we lost those congressional districts. The members didn't lose, but Hillary lost many of those yeah. congressional districts and lost those states, which tells me one of the lessons in politics that I love is based on an old Navy saying, take your eyes off the radar and look out the window. Mm-hmm. I think we had our eyes on the radar, the data, and Donald Trump was, I, was I listening so out the window. I agree with you. I, I, I said if, if I were to write a book about the election, it, it would, uh, it, the title would be, Who Are You Going to Believe, This Data or Your Lying That's Eyes? That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, my, I, I have a place in rural Michigan, and my wife called me the weekend before the election, and the campaign told me, yeah, we feel really good about Michigan. And, and she told me, you know, all our neighbors have Trump signs in their yards. Right. Uh, and that meant something. Mm-hmm. That meant something. I, I'm confounded, to be honest with you, about how a campaign that was so um, well healed and uh, had you know very smart people working for them um, kind of lost sight of what was in yeah. plain view. Yeah. When I was uh, chairman of DCCC, I used to tell my candidates, and you tell me what you think about this, that in the final two weeks of the campaign, they shouldn't get too hung up on their polling or data. I said, just listen to the narrative. Listen to what people are telling you. If you can go to a kitchen table or dining room table and hear what's being discussed around the table, that will give you a sense of whether you're going to win or lose. And I think that Hillary's campaign just stopped listening and were just too data driven. They also stopped polling, you know. They yeah. they didn't poll after October fourth, other than their analytics polling. Mm-hmm. That was a mistake. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, I Donald Trump, uh, uh, you know, is a force. There's no question about it. But he also was the most unpopular candidate ever elected president. Didn't right. win the popular vote. You have to really work to lose to Donald Trump. <laughs> You know, right, it doesn't right. just doesn't just happen. Yeah. So this notion of listening mm-hmm. to people, you, your political career began as a kind of town council town politi- yeah. po- politician. That is as granular a uh, a political assignment as there is. Mm-hmm. So what did you learn from that? So I was a town councilman in the small town of Huntington, Long Island, uh, about 30 miles east of New York City. Is that a full-time job? Uh, it shouldn't be, but I made it one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, here's what I learned. Number one, it's always about constituent services. Uh, I can't tell you how many people would come up to me and they would say, you know, I disagree with how you voted on that zoning issue, uh, but you helped me out in getting a stop sign. So it's about delivering. It's about, as you said, David, keeping your promises. Uh, that was number one. Number two... There is nothing so virulent and passionate in American politics than when a neighbor puts up a shed too close to the other neighbor's <laughs> fence. Those, I mean, you talk about border wars. They're, they're, that's where the real border wars are fought. So, so you mediated those. I mediated those. And then I went to Congress where at least, you know, I could, I could be in Washington three nights a week. When you're a town official uh, or a mayor, they see you every night. See, I think that mayors and local officials are maybe the best politicians in America totally agree. for that reason, mm-hmm. because there's nowhere to hide. Mm-hmm. You, you, you're constantly getting feedback. You don't need to look at polling and data. You're getting feedback every at supermarkets right. and on street corners. And you're dealing with qua- fundamental right. quality of life issues right. that, people, that, that define how people live. So it's really visceral stuff. 
it, it is, and it, it, I guess it trains you to listen, not to, not to pontificate, not to give long ideological speeches, but to listen to what's on people's minds. And at that level, what's on their minds is there's, a, there's been a pothole in front of my house for three years, councilman. I can't get anybody to pave the pothole. What are you going to do about it? And I took those lessons to the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And I remember saying to candidates at candidate uh, uh, trainings, when you knock on somebody's door and they complain about a pothole, if you give them your position on highway funding, you're going to lose. Instead, grab a shovel, <laughs> get some asphalt, pave the pothole. Yeah. And that's what people want. Yeah, yeah. So there are some mayors who are actually talking about running for president, Mayor Garcetti in, in, in uh, Los Angeles, uh, Mitch Landrieu, uh, the mayor of, or the former mayor now of... Uh, uh, of New Orleans, do you do you think that is a, a credible uh, path because of what we just talked about and given how jaundiced people are about Washington, do you think it's possible that one of these candidates could actually end up as a nominee of the party? You know, and you know better than anybody, um, you having being a mayor uh, is an important credential uh, in in your bio, but you also have to build out a national infrastructure. And I get really granular on this. You have to demonstrate an ability to win Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, and, and several other states. Uh, and so I'm more intrigued by a candidate who has a pathway uh, in those states. So let me go even more granular okay. on you, because before you ever have to worry about winning those states, you have to figure out how you're going to win Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, because if you're not the nominee, it really right. doesn't matter if you can carry those states. And one of the things that strikes me about Canada, a lot of these people who are talking about running for president is um, they, they don't, they aren't looking at it as a process. They're looking at it as one big sort of national primary or popularity mm -hmm. contest. And, 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 and a lot of the discussion is about how they would compete in a general election. But uh, very little discussion about who can win Iowa, who can win New Hampshire, who can go to South Carolina where the vo uh, vote, uh, the primary vote is like 55% African-American. Right. I mean, Hillary Clinton was the nominee of the Democratic Party uh, because she w had such a commanding position among African-American voters who, as you know, in the Democratic process, generally come from districts that have outsized importance because of the way party rules we're awarding extra delegates to super democratic districts. So, um, you know, I this is I look at a guy like Landrew, mm -hmm. uh, who has been the uh, lieutenant governor of a very rural state, lieutenant governor being important in the South because they run legislative bodies, and the mayor of a 60% black city. And then you begin to think, well, could he navigate? that or mm -hmm. you know and I look at I, I look at all of these candidates um, through that prism uh, and I, there's way too little attention paid to the sort of right. grinding mm -hmm. uh, you know logistics of how you actually become yeah. president if we couldn't have if we didn't if we didn't think we could win Iowa in 2008 uh, Barack Obama would not have run for president. So is this now? I'm going to ask a question of you. So okay. is this really more the 2008 Obama mo uh, model in those states? Do you think it you could be? Yeah. It could be. You know, one thing that's interesting mm -hmm. and I think overlooked is Barack Obama was not the most liberal candidate. He wasn't right. the most left candidate in the primaries. Uh, he was uh, he was anti-war. 
He had been against the Iraq War, which was an enormously important credential in that election. Um, but on some other issues, he was more moderate than, uh, you know, a John Edwards, mm-hmm. uh, even Hillary on some issues. Um, and uh, but he uh, he he was in a position to navigate uh, the process. And he, I think he got because he was African-American. I think there were certain assumptions that were made uh, in his favor. But he also was in a position when he rounded the corner to do very well in South Carolina to compete in yeah. many of the super uh, Tuesday states that mm-hmm. had large African American uh, populations, um, and uh, so you know this we we thought all of that through right. before he made the decision to run. And I my my admonition to every candidate is think through how you're going to navigate this yeah. process. Do you have the profile? Are you positioned to come through? You know, we also had the advantage of him being from the neighboring state to Iowa, so that was very helpful for both uh, reasons of identification and also the fact that it was easy for him. He spent 87 days in Iowa mm-hmm. in uh, 2007. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, one of the reasons I appreciate you is because you are a uh, you. You get into the details of all of this, <laughs> and you know, it's there's so much there's so much of importance to discuss in terms of the future of the country and some of the major issues we're facing that are being exacerbated right now by what we see in Washington. But it's still a process, and you have to pay attention to it uh, if you're going to be uh, successful. But I I would just say, look, I was on the other side of uh, of you in in 2008. I was uh, uh, with Hillary Clinton. She was my senator. I was in Congress. We were all together in the end. We were all together in the end. But here's what I, I think President Obama... Like President Clinton had that intangible, both in the primaries and the general, and that is the ability to tap into people's anxieties and aspirations. You can't be trained to do that. You can't be taught to do that. And I think this election, we're going to need a candidate who has that I agree with that. I thoroughly, thoroughly agree with Mm -hmm. that. And uh, that intangible is as important as the other thing. And and that intangible is also the thing that, that helps you navigate the process because there was no room right. that Barack Obama could walk into where he felt uncomfortable, where he didn't feel like he could relate to people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and a lot of that came from having campaigned in Illinois in these small towns right. in Illinois. I mean, that Iowa was very familiar uh, to him because so much of Iowa was so much like so much of downstate Illinois. And one of his great gifts was his ability to uh, relate to people of all mm-hmm. backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I can just tell you on the Iowa front, and I think New Hampshire is, is true as well. If you can't do that, it's very hard to win because that's a, right. these, this is retail politics. Right. So the ability to relate to people in a small room, but also inspire people in a greater, mm-hmm. in a big arena, that's, that's a, that's an, uh, that's a hard quality to find. Right. Uh, in people. So a guy like Mitch Landrew, I think, who had to campaign in Bro, Bro Bridge, Louisiana, but also knows now, how to now you're New showing Orleans. Off. <laughs> now there you're you go. Off. So. so so he can bring, so he, he gets it. He can bring that. How yeah. About that? I got yeah. You. I yeah. Got so that's why I look at a guy like <laughs> yeah. him and I say, that's, uh, that, that's some, someone to keep an eye on. Yeah. So in terms of your own story, uh, you were headed 
in one direction running for uh, Suffolk County executive and all of a sudden something happened that sent you in a completely different direction. Which is another lesson about politics I learned and that is better to be lucky than good. Uh, So I was all set to run for Suffolk County executive and my congressman was Rick Lazio Mm -hmm. who had a very Republican district who was winning reliably with 70-75% of the vote. He decides he's going to challenge Hillary Clinton uh, because so, Rudy Giuliani, who's a, right. of late famous again, yeah. uh, was running for the Senate against Hillary and then dropped out, had right. health issues. He had health issues. Out. So I was actually, it's an amazing thing, uh, I was sitting uh, in a Chinese restaurant on Long Island, which is where most <laughs> politics is decided. Yeah, so this, is a, right? this sounds like a quintessential New York totally. story. Totally. Yeah. And I was negotiating with a friend of mine who also wanted to run for county executive. And we were going to try and figure it out right at that lunch. And those were the days where we had um, pagers, yeah. no blackberries, and all of a sudden my pager started buzzing and ringing, and uh, I, I looked at this guy and said, I don't know what's going on, but something's happening. I, I got to go make a phone call. So I went to make a phone call, and the TV set over the bar in this Chinese restaurant was flashing the news that Rudy Giuliani had decided not to run, and Congressman Rick Lazio was going to run, and I went back to the table and said to my buddy, good luck on your county executive's race. I'm running for Congress. And... Uh and, and that turned out not to be, I mean, you, you had not just a, a, a competitive general, but yeah. you had a brutal, brutal, brutal primary, primary, as I remember. Yeah, brutal primary. Um, and then a tough Talk general. about that. You yeah. ran against, pri- well, primary elections <laughs> are often tougher and more brutal than general elections. Yeah, there's no question about it. Uh, yeah. In part because, like the guy you ran against yeah. was someone who you had worked with. He, uh, he was my employee in Suffolk County. He worked for me in, in Suffolk County government. He was a county legislator. I was a complete unknown. I was in the town of Huntington. Only a small segment of the town was in Lazio's congressional district. This guy was a county legislator whose entire district was in the congressional district. And I didn't have much of a chance. The D- my friends at the DCCC was supporting this guy. Yeah, they I was going to ask you that because you later on, when you were running the Democratic yeah. Congressional Campaign Committee, you had to make determinations as to exactly. who you were going to support. Yes. And I, I want to ask you about how deeply the DCCC yeah. should be involved in those decisions. And they bet on the other guy. They bet big on the other guy. So I was a victim and a perpetrator of those policies. Yeah. Uh, I was a victim when I ran because they were putting money into the other guy and members of Congress were supporting the other guy. He was very conservative, though. He was a very conservative Democrat. Which is why they primary. thought that's the decision that's right. that is often made. They yeah. thought he better reflected better this district. Yeah. So I win. I I beat him in the primary, which I didn't, uh, you know, our polling wasn't that great on election night, but we we won the primary. And then I woke up to uh, one of the top targeted races in the country with zero dollars and zero cents in my in my campaign treasury the day after the primary and had to start from scratch. Um, And I won. But I was here's another little bit of political trivia. I was the worst performing Democrat in the United States Congress that year. I got 48 percent of the vote. Because uh, it was like a five-person right. race. In New York, there are all these lines on the ballot. So in general five elections, there are often... Five people on the ballot, right. Yeah. So I come in at 48%. David, I was so skeptical of my chances of getting reelected and also so cheap a human being 
that when I went to Congress and got this tiny little studio apartment, I refused to buy a dresser for my clothing. I lived out of just a line of paper bags from the supermarket because I figured this is one of the most Republican districts in the country for a Democrat to represent. Um, And I got reelected two years after that, and then it was uh, pretty smooth sailing. And uh, you moved up pretty quickly in the House uh, in terms of uh, leadership. Did you... What, what, how did you approach that job? So I never thought I'd be in the leadership of, of the House because my district was so tough. Uh, and I went home every single weekend. Um, you know, there was nothing that was happening in my district where you couldn't bump into me. Uh, it was exhausting, but I knew this is a Republican district. I've got to prove myself. Uh, and I think sh- demonstrating an ability to win a tough Republican district uh, – told a story to my colleagues that, you know, I had figured out what you have to do, uh, and that helped put me in a position to chair the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Because we've won all the blue districts we can win. You can't get the majority unless you can uh, sweep into some pink districts, purple districts, and red districts. And mine was one of them. And what year uh, did you take over the DCCC? I took over uh, after the catastrophe of uh, oh, that's 2010. Right, yes. so. This is why I, I, I blotted it out of my head. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, it's, yeah. It's traumatic. We lost 63 seats 63 in 2010. Seats in that brutal election. Uh, and uh, Nancy Pelosi in the caucus asked me to chair DTRIP uh, in 2011. I did it that cycle. Under the classic buy low, sell high. That's it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we picked up eight, uh, and then we lost those eight uh, the, the following cycle, uh, 2014. And tell me about that experience of, uh, of, of running that, because yeah. you're essentially overseeing races all over the country. You referenced mm-hmm. this before. And you, you, know, you must have become a student of of every one of these districts. I was mentored by Rahm Emanuel, somebody you know. So when he chaired the DCCC, he recruited me uh, into leadership at DCCC. He put me in charge of recruiting the right candidates in the right districts. Uh, And he said to me, uh, I think you can be the chair one day. Uh, And uh, so I learned at, you know, uh, under Rob's tutelage. You know, let me just stop you there Mm -hmm. because I remember I was involved in 2006 Mm -hmm. in that uh, campaign to take uh, back the House. And I remember how assiduously he he uh, approached the candidate recruitment thing. Yeah. I remember him, uh, Heath Schuler. Yeah. He was trying to recruit Heath Schuler, and Schuler was worried about how, whether he would be able to attend his kids' ball games. And Rom would call him from his kids' ball game, and he'd hold up the phone so that Schuler could hear the crowd at his kids' ball <laughs> I, game. I heard that story. And yeah. uh, and, yeah. and so on. But he was very assiduous yes. about. Uh, identifying people yeah. and some of them hadn't even thought about running for Congress. Right. Yeah. Assiduous and uh, merciless, yes. I, I would say. But, you know, Ron that taught sounds, me. That sounds right. He, yeah. He, he taught me, I think, a, a really important and, and fundamental lesson about winning majorities, and that is you don't win them in the closing weeks, you win them in the opening weeks with your recruits. Uh, so uh, he would send me into these godforsaken remote districts. You know why I know about Bro Bridge in Louisiana? Because he sent me to recruit a candidate in Bro Bridge, Louisiana. I didn't even, you know, I, I remember calling Senator John Bro and saying, where's the closest kosher deli? Yes, you know, I was going to say, I bet you're the, uh, you were probably the first Jew in the town. I think so. Yeah. I think so. There was that awkward pause on the other end of the phone. He said, well, I said, no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But Rom, you know, taught the lesson that is irrefutable. 
you number one, you don't win in the closing days. You win at the beginning by the, the quality of your recruits. Number two, you've got to recruit in areas that people are skeptical about. We've won all the blue districts to win. In this cycle, which I study assiduously, yes. there aren't many more blue districts that we can win. There are only a few that we have to defend. You want to win the majority? You've got to go into Louisiana. You've got to go into Kansas. Two districts in Kansas. So let me ask you this. Um, he recruited and he also discouraged candidacies yeah. of people who he thought couldn't uh, win. And I'm sure you did that as well. I did. We're in a unique time in our history. We have record numbers of people uh, wanting to run for mm -hmm. office. I think that's a positive thing because it, there is this new sense of engagement. After 2016, you rarely hear people say, yeah, elections don't make a difference. There is this sense that elections make a difference. You do have this outpouring of candidates. There are very competitive primaries all over the country. And candidates are raising money in way, at, at clips that we haven't seen before mm -hmm. because of the nature of technology and because citizens are engaged and want to support them. That is all to the good. Uh, but it's it runs counter to this theory that you should make ensure the uh, the the success of the most electable candidate. Right. So I have a cold blooded and uh, perhaps reptilian view uh, of this. Uh, <laughs> Let which me back is, up. Back up. Which <laughs> is just win. Uh, and, and I went through it. As I said, I was a victim of a, of a decision by DCCC uh, to back the other guy, and I proved that they were wrong. And so I had to make those decisions. Uh, and when candidates would say, well, how could you do this? You know, why, how could you support somebody else? Uh, I would say, look, I feel your pain. I was there. Prove me wrong. And in most cases, they weren't able to prove uh, the DCCC wrong. Now, there are some exceptions. There always will be. But it all comes down to this. If you want checks and balances to Donald Trump, you've got to have a Democratic majority. If you want a Democratic majority, you've got to reach into some Republican districts. If you want to reach into those Republican districts and win them, you have to have good fits for the district. Uh, and so I get the decision. I get the strategy. Uh, it's hard to put your thumb on the scale. You don't want to leave fingerprints, I mean, but sometimes well, you have to. Well, I'll give you an example. The DCCC sort of heavy-handedly tried to interpose itself in a district in Houston. That's exactly right. And we just saw a great mm -hmm. battle within the Democratic Party over whether the DNC had put its thumb on the scale right. for Hillary Clinton. That enraged Bernie Sanders' mm -hmm. supporters. So was it smart for the DCCC to be so overtly involved in a race in which the person they were trying to knock out yeah. was a very committed Sanders person? Yeah, well, so you don't want to do it in a way that backfires. And that's hard. There's no guarantee that it won't. You know, there are different approaches. We try to use all of the, the carrots and the diplomatic skills we could muster uh, when I was the chair of DTRIP. Um, sometimes they worked, sometimes they didn't. Uh, you don't want, as I said before, you, you, sometimes you have to put your thumb on the scale, but you, you'd rather not leave fingerprints. Uh, in that case, I thought that the DCCC not only left fingerprints, but left 10 fingerprints on the scale. And that becomes a problem. And uh, the energy in the party there uh, seems yeah. to be coming um, in no small measure from the left. We've seen some districts, as we sit here today, there was a primary this week mm -hmm. in uh, one district in Nebraska. Yeah. You saw a, uh, the, the more uh, progressive candidate mm -hmm. um, beat a former member of Congress who... Brad Ashford. Was, and uh, uh, there was a sense that 
because of the nature of that district, he had a better chance uh, to win the general election. Under your rule, why wouldn't you say, well, if she was strong enough to win a primary, um, maybe she'll be strong enough to win the general? I would probably make that decision. Uh, and in fact, the day after, uh, the DCCC announced that she's a great candidate uh, and you know they'll get behind her. As you know, the tough decisions come in August and September when mm -hmm. you speak with your wallet. Uh, and at that point, DCCC has to make decisions where to move money in. Uh, and they'll look at her polling. They'll look at polling around the country in the 62 competitive districts that exist now. Uh, they'll, they'll look at polling in real time. They'll look at infrastructure and money. And if she's competitive at that point, they're going to they're gonna buy time in her district. I, I should ask you now, just to get it out of the way, what is the outcome of this congressional election going to be? And just remember you're being recorded. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm the guy who appeared at a New York Times uh, forum on election night in 2016 with my uh, colleague in Congress, Hakeem Jeffries, and announced to the crowd that in three hours, Hillary Clinton was going to be president of the United States. So mm -hmm. don't take what I say with any you're the, a grain of salt. You, you're the only observer, commentator, yeah. pundit who got that wrong. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, with that disclaimer... Yeah. I think there's uh, well over a 50% chance that the Democrats take the House, and, and here's why. Uh, conservatively, there are now 62 competitive districts in the country. Just, just to put that in perspective, when I chaired DCCC, we had to bust our butts to get it to 30 competitive districts. Now there's double that. Of those 62 districts— And define competitive. Define competitive is uh, swing districts uh, or districts where you have a specific Republican incumbent who looks weak, hasn't raised money, mm -hmm. maybe has some ethical issues. Uh, so we got it up to 30, and that was our high watermark. It's now 62. Of and those, um, and you've seen a wave of Republican retirements, which have... Which has upped the number. We, mm -hmm. we could hardly get anybody to retire when Republicans to retire when I was DCCC chair because they didn't believe they were going to lose the majority. Mm -hmm. Now they do. Of those 62, I count six to seven that are being defended by Democrats. And I count 56 to 55 that are being defended by Republicans. This is like the reverse of what's happening in the Senate. The math fundamentally favors Democrats. I do think that we need to be a little bit realistic about the challenge. I mean, some people are talking about picking up 60 seats and 50 seats. No, Democrats need about 25 seats to, to be in the majority. I see this landing right now in the low to mid-30s, and the reason for that is Republicans outsmarted us on redistricting. They right. went local, they took control of the maps, they built themselves firewalls that will be very hard to breach. But even with those firewalls, I think there's a better than 50% chance that the Democrats take the majority in the House. So why did you leave the House? Well, um, I spent uh, you know, my childhood believing that I was going to write. I came to the conclusion uh, in Washington that I was never going to write a law that was going to pass because of the gridlock. Uh, and maybe I should focus on writing books. Uh, it would be more effective and pleasant. And also, to be perfectly blunt with you, I couldn't stand to get into another cubicle to make another fundraising call to another donor asking for another dollar. Uh, I did this piece in the New York Times when I left that was pretty controversial called yeah. Confessions of a Congressman yes. where I quantified the hours that I spent. The and you talked about roles. the first message you got when you were a young congressman yeah. uh, about uh, what the most important things you needed to do. Right. 
So I show up, 2001. My dream came true. I'm like Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And, you know, within a week, I, I had to become Frank Underwood, you know, in, uh, in House of Cards. Because one of the first messages we get is, you got to raise $10,000 a week if you're going to come back and you're from a competitive district. By the time what's, I left... What's the number now? $30,000 a week. When I was elected in 2000, I was told 10 hours a week of call time. When I was the DCCC chair, I had to tell candidates 30 hours of call time a week. A week. It's just not a sustainable model. It's a huge opportunity cost. Yeah. It's also, I think, what people perceive. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a sense that, that uh, the perpetuation of uh, members of Congress in office and the money chase that involves and the compromises mm-hmm. that that entails is uh, is cor- is corrosive. You know, I think it's corrosive, not necessarily corrupting, but right. I think it's corrosive from the perspective that if you're spending 30 hours a week in a competitive district, not every member of Congress does that, but if you're spending 30 hours a week in a competitive district raising money, that's 30 hours that you're giving up to think about Afghanistan, to think about ISIS, to think about infrastructure, to think about how you strengthen the middle class economy. That's the opportunity cost that we're suffering. Yeah. I, I, I just want to ask you a couple more questions sure. relative to Congress, and then I want to talk to you about your second mm-hmm. career uh, and your and your writing. Uh, a lot. There's been a lot of focus on Nancy Pelosi, yeah. uh, someone you know well, someone you worked with closely, someone I worked with closely mm-hmm. when I was with the White House, and I've said many times that much of what Barack Obama got done as president in those first two years would not have happened, mm-hmm. but for her determined, wily. Uh, relentless leadership. Um, nonetheless, she has become and has been from the beginning a target of uh, of of the Republican uh, uh, message machine. Uh, and candidates are finding that she, you know, you you saw Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania eluded that, mm-hmm. but most of the campaign was Connor Lamb's going to be Pelosi's sheep. Um, and uh, there is this fear among candidates that that is going to that is a burden. How do you uh, what what would you advise candidates and what would you advise Pelosi? I would give the same advice to candidates that Nancy Pelosi always has, and I was a witness to this. Say what you have to say. Do what you have to do. Just win. That was her guiding philosophy. If you have to be against me to win, be against me. If you have to be for me to win, be for me. It's not about me. It's about getting the majority and having checks and balances. She is a stalwart believer in that. And I would go to her. It was awkward. I would go to her at times and say, you know, you're doing a fundraiser for so-and-so. And we just moved millions of dollars into that campaign. And some of that money is going to be that candidate promising to vote against you. And she'd kind of blink at me and say, so what's the issue? What's the problem? Is, is it more of an issue now, though, if large numbers of candidates uh, do that? And there seems to be a feeling among some younger members. I mean, you have three leaders who are mm-hmm. nearing their 80s mm-hmm. uh, that there needs to be a leadership change. She has been outspoken in understanding that there needs to be a transition to younger leadership. Uh, you know, and I have not talked to her about this personally in quite some time. Uh, but that transition is vitally important. Look, when I, when I chaired DCCC of the 200 million that we raised, she raised about 100 million. And that wasn't money for the Democrats. That mm-hmm. was money because they believed that Nancy Pelosi you know, should have a Democratic majority. Mm-hmm. Um, she wants to make sure when, when it's her time to leave, 
she will leave. But she wants to make sure that she leaves the caucus with somebody who has an ability to keep it unified, somebody who has an ability to negotiate legislative achievements, which nobody ever has done as, as uh, well as she yeah. has. Well, maybe since Sam Rayburn. Uh, and somebody who has an ability to project a coherent message from the caucus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I think that will happen, whether it's sooner or later, is you know, outside of my expertise. I'll just say one other thing on this. If this midterm election becomes a referendum on Nancy Pelosi, you know, we're going to lose not because she's uh, problematic, but because we allowed it to be stolen from a referendum of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as long as this is a referendum, a referendum on Donald Trump, we're going to win. And let me ask you about that. Uh, sh- sh- uh, one of the things that was uh, interesting about the, that race in Pennsylvania, that Lamb one, is mm-hmm. that he rarely talked about Donald Trump. And I guess the question is, do candidates need to uh, be uh, self-conscious about raising Trump or do they get the tailwind and should they focus more on their individual community? Well, I, I'm interested in your view on this. We may disagree, but here again, just kind of clinically, diagnostically, uh, and reptil- in a reptilian sense, I've never believed in a national message mm-hmm. for House Democrats. You can't yeah. do it. We're too yeah. diverse. A message that works in Iowa, too, is not going to work in New right. York 11. Right. So my view is Tip O'Neill was right. It's all local. All right. politics is local. Right. Say what resonates at home and don't worry about the expertise coming out of the beltway. I also think, yes, well, could put me down as a fellow reptilian. <laughs> I, uh, I also think that um, there is so much noise in Washington and so much uh, uh, disharmony and, and so much, uh, I think people are exhausted. Yeah. And I think they want people who are just going to get stuff done for them and their communities. Right. And so um, I think it's a trap to try and, you know, if all you're doing is talking about Donald Trump. Right. I think that's a that's a big trap and for impeachment. Democrats. I mean, that is yeah. just such a huge trap that the Republicans right. are laying in these districts all over the country. It is a political trap. It's also wrong. Yeah, I agree. By the way, yeah. because you have an investigation that's ongoing, mm-hmm. and what does it say if you say I've already made up my mind? Right. I think that's a terrible idea. It may be helpful in a primary, mm-hmm. but it's it's not ultimately good politics, and it's not it's not good uh, governance. My my last question to you, because it's in the in the news mm-hmm. right now, is you were an opponent of the Iran yeah. nuclear agreement. Um, it has now been in place mm-hmm. for a few years, um, and now the president is 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 walking away mm-hmm. from it. Um, what was your reaction to that decision as someone who opposed the agreement? I think uh, it's it's the wrong decision. I think that President Trump's decision to walk away is wrong and. You know, I, I grew up, again, believing that one day I would have the dream of being told, being on the floor of the House and getting a message that the president wants to speak to you. I thought that would be such a, a dream. I realized what a nightmare that could be yeah. <laughs> when that actually happened and got on the phone with President Obama and we spoke for 25 minutes. I opposed the deal for two reasons. Number one, I was concerned that it didn't address Iran's uh, ballistic missile capabilities. Number two, it didn't address Iran's transfer of lethal technologies to terrorist organizations. Uh, but and in fairness, these are two of the rationales that Trump raised in correct. withdrawing from the agreement. But here's where he went wrong. First of all, once the United States makes an agreement, it's got to be good to his word. Uh, and, uh, you know, this, this argument that it wasn't really a, it wasn't a treaty, it was only agreement, therefore we could walk away from it is a distinction without a difference. Our standing in the world depends on our willingness to keep our word even when it's hard. The deal was done. 
We should have kept our word. Secondly, we were very close. Our allies were very close to getting an agreement with Iran on those two issues, on the ballistic missile testing program uh, and on the transfer of technology. They said to the as president... A, as a separate agreement. As a separate agreement. Um, the uh, foreign secretary of Great Britain did a piece in the New York Times where he pled with President Trump and said, we're close. Don't unravel this deal. We can get there. And the president was just in such a rush to deny that, uh, that new agreement uh, that he just had to announce that he was leaving the deal before they could reach that accomplishment. Now, why is that? Because this is a president whose foreign and domestic policies are rooted in one thing, and that is to undo the legacy of Barack Obama. I don't think this president really understood the deal. I don't think he ever read it. His view was, if Obama did it, I got to right. undo it. Seems to be a guiding principle in all of his decisions. The, maybe the, guy, the only guiding yeah. principle. Which I, I understand politically. Uh, but when you're talking about the foreign policy and national security interests of the United States, it is very dangerous to have policies rooted uh, in that kind of snide and cynical view of things. Let's let's talk about your your writing career. You know, you are a um, uh, I know you're a student of military history, and you've uh, you, you've 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 written and 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 talked about that. But when you decided to write, you you instead became a novelist. Yeah. Why did you make that that decision? Well, here's what happened. I'm chairing DCCC, and the only therapy I would have is writing. So I always love to write. And uh, you know this because you have been on many planes going yeah, around the country, right. going to districts and states. So the only relief I had, and my therapy was just writing. Uh, and so I'd write planes, trains, autos, and I will confess during some Democratic caucus meetings where yeah. I may not have been paying sufficient attention. Yeah. Um, and I did this first book called The Global War on Morris, and, and here's what, uh, what uh, prompted it. It's 9-11. You know, now I'm a freshman congressman from Long Island. My biggest meeting up to that point was meeting Which with Which was, the by the way, defi definitional for you in many totally ways. Totally definitional. Yeah. My biggest meeting at that point was you know, meeting with the high highway superintendent of Huntington to discuss those potholes. Now I'm in the cabinet room with President Bush and Vice President Cheney and Don Rumsfeld and Colin Powell. And I'm watching this drama. And as you know, David, you can't take any paper, pens. You right. can't take any devices in. And I would just watch this drama and hear some, at times, absurd dialogue from some of the people around the room. And then I'd rush out and I would just kind of frame it. You know, I wouldn't uh, write anything that I couldn't write, but I'd kind of frame this and frame the dialogue and the human drama and the tension and some of the absurdities. And that ends up becoming my first novel, The Global War on Morris, which is the story of this, this schlub, this schlemiel from Great Neck, <laughs> New York, who doesn't watch the news. He may not know who David Axelrod is. He, he just loves the Mets and Turner Classic the movies. The definition of a schlub. The definition of yeah. a schlub. And suddenly, because of uh, a mistake in the National Security uh, Agency, he becomes targeted as a major terrorist mastermind. So this is the global war on Morris. Then I wanted to do a second satire, and I wanted to deal with gun violence. Uh, and, and the reason for that is, in 16 years in Congress, uh, there were 52 mass shootings. Uh, a movie theater in Aurora, Aurora, Colorado, Virginia Tech, a campus, church in Charleston, and Sandy Hook. And every, the, the most prevalent question that I would receive after every one of those shootings and most of my colleagues was this, when are you going to do something about it? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just from progressives. It was from NRA members. Do something. Don't do everything. Do something. And I decided to answer the question, when is Congress going to act, in the best way I know, through satire, snark, and from the inside 
of, of those hearing rooms, those caucus meetings, uh, and those markups. And the answer is never. I'm, I'm sorry to say. Now, maybe it changes with Parkland, but I knew the answer in six, mm-hmm. over 16 years was never because of the intensity of gun voters, uh, which overwhelms all, all, all other issues. And I remember, I think you'll appreciate this, I remember after one appropriations committee markup where we offered amendments like no fly no buy if you're yes. too dangerous to get on a which plane is 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 which should be a no-brainer it's a no-brainer 90 percent if, of America if you can't get it. on a plane you ought not to because That's of right. security concerns yes. you ought not to be able to buy a weapon we offered that amendment it was defeated offered an amendment to completely ban cop killing bullets no loopholes defeated offered an amendment to strengthen background checks defeated and I remember getting on a members-only elevator, and some of my Republican friends were very angry at me, and they said, why did you force us to take those votes to vote against that stuff? And I said, well, what do you mean, why did we force you? The question is, why did you vote against that stuff? And they looked at me kind of sadly, one in particular, and said, well, I wanted to vote yes. I can't go to my district and face those gun voters. I'll lose in a primary. Not a general, I'll lose right. in a primary. Which is and that's why nothing's going to get done. American politics yes. right now. Yes, um, And... It was more the organization of voters by the NRA than the money itself that the Absolutely. NRA spends. Yeah, the, I know, think that's a misunderstood. Total misunderstanding, and yeah. I explain it in this book. I mean, I answer the question in Big Guns, what's going on in Congress? And I shatter some myths. There is this assumption that the NRA spends lavishly to protect its candidates. No, it's not that at all. It's that they exploit that voter intensity, that 10% of voters who are against no fly, no buy. Mm-hmm. They are single issue voters and the gun lobby is expert at exploiting that. So let me ask you about the Parkland kids mm-hmm. and some of, and the, 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 uh, the uh, activity that they've, uh, uh, that they've encouraged and, and provoked uh, with their very earnest uh, pleas. Yeah. Uh, do you think, did you see in that any possibility that there could be a counterweight, that there could be a mobilization, at least in some districts, that could be uh, decisive? We've talked about the fact that there are these marginal districts. Many of them are in the suburbs, yep. which uh, which has a different uh, outlook on uh, being in metropolitan areas on the gun issue. I mean, could the gun issue play the other way in this election? It can if these students are strategic. Um, first, there is a unique alignment in this midterm election of the most competitive districts in the country that are also the difference between an incumbent who votes with the gun lobby 100% of the time and a challenger who will vote against the gun lobby at times. There are only about, by my count, 10 to 15 of those districts. Uh, And so if these students over the summer go to Florida not to wear flip-flops on vacation, but to flip a couple districts in Florida. Nicely done. Nice alliteration there, yeah. Uh, Then then that could change the game. So they've got to focus on this alignment of districts. And the, the other thing I would say is this, and we go back to my town hall days. So after Parkland, I'm invited to address a rally of students uh, in, uh, and, and families uh, at Huntington Town Hall. Man, when I was a councilman in Huntington, if we wanted 30 people to show up, we had to offer free pizza. Mm-hmm. I showed up at this thing, 3,000 people. Wow. And I put on my David Axelrod hat, and I kind of surveyed the, the crowd, and I realized, okay, half of these people are students who can't vote. The other half are the parents who had to drive them to this rally. 
If these students can continue to get their parents to drive them to rallies, drive them to districts, and if they're talking about this issue in October at the kitchen table, that's going to change districts and that's going to change the law. So if they can keep this intensity and narrative going, that's going to be a big difference. Yeah. I mean, you know, you were, uh, you were not in Congress yet in 94 when uh, the assault weapons ban mm-hmm. was passed uh, and was blamed for it grew there were some of it was mythology i think right. some of it was true but the sense was you can't get near that issue um it's it'll be interesting to see how this plays out if at the end of the day in november part of the storyline is hey a whole bunch of guys lost their yeah. gals lost their seats right. because they were so rigid on this gun issue that their that that their constituents wouldn't tolerate it. Well, so in big guns, I make the, the the point again through satire that there is nothing more elucidating to a member of Congress than watching a colleague lose an election over ideology. Right. They will, within two minutes, find find a, a gun safety bill to sponsor, uh, and that's what it's going to take. A few of those ten to fifteen districts, you don't have to win them all. But if you win three to five of them, yeah. that's a sea change on this issue. Yeah, and I think one of the what will be interesting is how uh, artfully and aggressively uh, not just the students but others who support gun safety laws take that mm-hmm. and uh, and build their own story and narrative right. uh, because it will have outsized importance. Steve Israel, uh, congratulations Thank on you, your sir. new career. I think your timing was exquisite <laughs> in making this transition when you did. I know you're going to be an, uh, a uh, fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago in the fall. To it. Yeah. And we're looking forward to uh, spending more time with you. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.